you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is author Daniel Krauss. He is a New York Times bestselling writer of novels, TV, and film, including The Living Dead and the novelization of The Shape of Water. His latest novel, Whalefall, destroyed both me and Terry and is available now. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Hello. Uh, I have been dying to talk with you about Whale Fall <laughs> since I read it earlier this summer. But um, for our listeners that might not be aware of it, can you kind of give us a little bit of, of what it's about? Sure. I mean, it's on the one hand, very easy to summarize. It's uh, about a scuba diver who's swallowed by a sperm whale and has one hour of air left to get out. So that's the short, short version. There's a lot of other things that are going on in the book, but... That description is not inaccurate. Like that is it's very accurate. That is okay. the, the essential plot of the book. There's a kind of a there's a there's a major other level of the boy who was swallowed, sort of dealing with his relationship to his father, um, who died in those waters, and he begins to in the stomach of the whale, he begins to sort of hallucinate maybe that the the whale is his father, and so. To escape, he's going to have to try to reconcile with his dad in some ways to have to remember the lessons his dad taught him, which could help him escape the whale. So before getting into like a lot of these really like these other themes, I was curious what drew you to the like, whales and the ocean and scuba diving. Like, is this something that you were interested in previously? I I read a little bit in the back of the book. You kind of go into it a little bit, but I just wanted to hear more about like the inspiration to go into this world of aquatic horror basically no i wasn't um invested in in whales or the ocean or diving at all um i knew nothing about any of those things uh so this is really the opposite of right what you know <laughs> <laughs> i couldn't have known less so it, but it, the inspiration came from a viral video of a whale sort of breaching and landing on a couple of kayakers which lots of people have seen Mm -hmm. And the kayakers are okay. They just sort of end up in the mouth for a second. And then they're sort of spat out, which whales generally do, because they have these tiny little stomachs. I'm sorry, tiny little throats. Uh, sperm whales, though, have, have giant throats. They're the only one that could, in theory, swallow somebody. So really, it was the, it was the premise that kick-started my interest in it. And once I started interviewing whale experts to get a sense of if this was even possible, what's inside a whale? Could one live at all in there? What what could one do or not do? Uh, I quickly became kind of obsessed with whales, and I still am. And and people give me whale. I just today I got another whale gift. People give me whale stuff constantly. Oh I'm, my god! Not only do I own a week's worth of whale clothing. I've got whale mugs and whale like crochet things people have made and little whale statues. Uh, they just keep coming, but I'm okay with it. Cause I really do. They are sort of my favorite animal now. I can only imagine. <laughs> I was telling Terry, I was like, this book made me realize it's not just like a big old chamber. Like you think in Pinocchio or like, and yeah. again, like it's something you don't Pinocchio think about it, but you're like reading it. I was like, wait, this is really claustrophobic and there's no space. Oh my God, no, opening in a whale's stomach is actually like not what you think it is. And it was... Yeah, that was my, my first question. Well, my first question was, could someone be swallowed? Yeah. Uh, like the second yeah. question was, what's the space like? Because I had assumed that it wasn't Pinocchio, where there's like an auditorium. <laughs> but I did wonder, is it something you could stand up in? Like, I, I didn't know yeah. anything. And it turns out it's more like a sleeping bag. 
um, <laughs> an elastic sleeping bag. So it's like tight, but you could, but it's, a, but it's, you can kind of push it with your arms and legs. So it's stretchy a little bit. Uh, so yeah, it's really, it's really about the smallest space you could, you could exist. In. Have you seen the movie, the borderlands or the final prayer? Are they the same movie? Yeah, they are. They're, they have the same title. Well, hey, it's the, the final, same movie. The final prayer sounds really familiar. The to found me. footage. It's a found footage movie about a church in Ireland, and it's like it's a church that is placed over a like burial site, and there's something to do at the end that reminds me of your book, and it was really weird. Like I haven't really experienced that in like, media in terms yeah. of digestion, and it's just very <laughs> harrowing. So uh... well, I'll add that to my. My watch list for this month because I don't think I've seen them. It's it's a fa- it's, it's good. It's, fa- really it's a good, good full core found footage if you're a found footage Great. person. Yeah, yeah, yeah and sure. the ending is one of the most fucked up things I think I've ever seen. Um, per- personally, so <laughs> there's nothing that'll get me to watch something faster than hearing that it has a a, a great ending. That's that's yep. that's, mm-hmm. that's that always seals the deal for me. So your your book uh, wrecked my entire life because you hopped into a very specific fear of mine um and your your book is so specific in jay's experience with his dad but it also is very universal because i also have not spoken to my dad in a very long time and your book if i start crying i'm so sorry um this <laughs> is embarrassing no believe me when i say i'm kind of used to it at this point i know i'm sorry it's really okay <laughs> but um my like biggest fear is he's going to die and everyone's going to blame me. It's not that necessarily I'm not going to get to see him, but the blame and the feelings from other people. And I've never read something or experienced something that has captured that anxiety in a way that isn't shaming you for not wanting to reconcile with your parent, because so many things are very preachy about like, you have to forgive. It's important to forgive the power of forgiveness. And I don't really necessarily believe in that so much. And so me neither. Your book was so validating and so challenging for me in a really amazing way. And I mean, holy shit, what was that like for you to write this, though? I mean, I can only imagine like what's going on in digging into Jay's character and his relationship with his dad and what that experience was like for you yeah. as a writer. It is. It has been um, startling to, to hear how many people have been affected by it although it's more like found it um relevant to very specifically relevant to their lives and i expected some of that but not as much as i've i've received um so there is something even though yeah like you said it's very specific and yet somehow somehow there's something about that's universal yeah you know a lot of it was you know like you're saying a lot of it is sort of based on personal experience and I just tried to be really uh, emotionally open to that, you know. Like I, I've written about this kind of relationship a couple times, like at the beginning of my career. Mm, okay, but not as head on as this is. Like I was always sort of writing around it, and sort of glancing off it. Yeah, uh, this was something where I just decided I, I was so I liked the premise so much, and I felt like the premise was so powerful, just in, just inherently powerful. Uh, that I wanted a relationship that felt as inherently powerful. And to me, it was, I didn't want to overthink it. You know, I just wanted yeah. to, what's the most powerful relationship that I can write right now? Um, and I hadn't written about sort of a father-son thing in 18 books or something. It had been a long time. Uh, yeah, okay. So I'm just older now and um, maybe wiser and just maybe a better writer. And can just uh, I just felt ready to, to tackle it and just yeah cut right through the center of it well that was the thing i when i went into this i was really excited because i love aquatic horror and i'm like the idea of being stuck in a whale stomach i don't think you can find anything much more horrifying when you consider everything about the the sea just that idea of it so i was very excited going into it and i honestly was not expecting to be moved <laughs> by some of the themes you explore and one of the things that like really hit me was that like as a, as a queer person the relationship with the father is is very rife with issues in our society sometimes and also the idea of like masculinity and and oh, yeah. this I, is is such a 
a potent theme that even though the character, I mean, there's a, there's one moment where he's like, I don't think I'm gay, but like there's even without that, there is a sense of, of um, I guess, universality with how queer people feel in those types of relationships. So I like for me, I was floored at how much it felt like this could be my story. Like I just I and that's what I really that's what really drew me to it after I got past the fact that, oh, this is gonna be awesome because this is an aquatic horror book. Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate that. A, a lot of it is really about masculinity. Like mm-hmm. what what Jay always feels not like an, enough of a man yeah. to, to uh, suit his father, who's who's sort of a, just like my dad was, sort of a old school hunting, fishing, yep. you know, yeah. Or, harvester of other creatures in other words mm-hmm. yeah that that can be done in a way and i think my dad and mitt both do this can be done in a way that's really sort of ecologically sound uh so that there that's not the issue with it the issue right. is that, that it involves a sort of right of violence that is not for everyone and jay's not willing for whatever personal convictions he has or just his personality just doesn't want to be part of that cycle where he's expected to sort of become the next in line of this kind yep. of this kind of man. So that was very easy for me to dig into. Like I didn't have to explore very deep for that. But yeah, I mean, I, I love your read of it and the line you point out about him sort of like saying, I don't think I'm gay or whatever is very intentional. You know, I, I want Jay, he's, He's fighting to be, he's fighting to define himself in opposition to his dad. Like yeah. he doesn't know what he wants to be, but he knows it's not that. And that's kind of what he's building away from. And I also like that Jay's a 17, 17, 17 year old boy. Yeah. And you don't, it's, and I was just curious about choosing his age and having him be on the edge. And I love how he is like on the edge of, manhood whatever we want to call that like legally becoming an adult and kind of just curious why you chose that age for him well the uh, there's sort of two reasons the first one will surprise you it's it really had to do with the mechanics of a whale when i was first talking to uh the very first of my whale experts that i interviewed um the one who told me that yeah you someone could be swallowed by a sperm whale he said it would have to be a really big sperm whale and a pretty small person. So immediately I thought, well, this probably isn't going to be, uh, at the very least, a large man. Yeah. Right. Be someone smaller, not a child, because a child wouldn't be out diving like that. So <laughs> the first, the most obvious thing was it's a it's a teenager. And then the second thing was really what we were talking about before. I just wanted to pair the powerful premise with something I felt strongly about. And so I put the two together and it's like, well, it's, it's going to be a, a teenage boy. Um, so part mm-hmm. of it was really just practicality of who can fit down the throat, you know? <laughs> what a wild thing to consider. Like, all right, the mechanic, because I mean, I can only imagine have people been like kind of bothering you about the actual mechanics of whales and trying to like scientifically disprove anything in the book to you. I, I, mean, I keep waiting oh, for it. Okay. <laughs> That's good. Because I was like, because I was reading the back and you were just like, to anyone who wants to complain, I took some liberties here. Just it's, I'm not a scientist. And well, I was, I mean, <laughs> in my own defense, I, I just to be very clear, I, I didn't take any liberties. There's just one whale fact that is debated. And I, it's probably and the, the direction I'm going to is probably the right direction. But there's some debate about Ooh, one. But I'm very, wild. I'm very clear about it. So, yeah. What's your? Do you have a favorite whale besides the sperm whale now? No, just the sperm whale. Just the sperm whale. Okay. They so scary. Would you ever go diving with sperm whale or with with sperm whales? Oh boy! You know, after Peter <laughs> ben- after Peter Benchley wrote Jaws, he got all these offers to dive with sharks, and he um and he took a he took a, he was a diver, so he uh, took them up on that, and he did. Uh, he spent the rest of his life fighting for shark uh, yeah. conservation. And he was always diving with sharks and going into shark cages and all this stuff. So there's part of me, my gut answer is that is no, I don't want, I'm, I'm not a diver. I'm not a good swimmer. I don't intend to ever really do it again. Uh, but there's part of me that wonders, like, if National Geographic contacted me and they're like, 
your your book. We love your book. It's so important. Blah blah blah. Blew a lot of smoke on my butt. We got to get you in the water with the wave. I would think about it. I would think about it because of partially because of how much my great respect for Peter Benchley and his wife Wendy, who uh, really devoted their lives to such a thing, and they really were able to bring awareness to it because of who they were. Uh, so if I was ever in a position to be able to do something good by it, then I would consider it. Uh, just okay. just me alone. I don't I don't think so. I just, I'm just not good in the water. Yeah, that's fair. The water scares me, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Yeah. All right. So before we, we do talk about the movie that you brought, uh, let's t- let's take it back to being a kid. How did you get introduced to the horror genre? Um, my mom, she was a big fan of Night, Night of the Living Dead and Twilight Zone. OK, these are two things that were on TV all the time. So, you know, back in the early days where you just watched what was on. And mm-hmm. so I saw Twilight Zone every week. And this is starting when I was like five or six years old. Uh-huh. And uh, Night of the Living Dead all the time. It, it was always on multiple times a year. And she just loved horror. And she really enjoyed those two things. Like she wasn't sitting there like moaning and terror. She was laughing and having a good time. And so I think it made it sort of a safe space uh, where I got to enjoy it. And then as I got older, I, you know, like, like a lot of us pushed, kept kind of pushing the limit. So this would have been very classic sort of 80s VHS video store stuff where we had, I lived in a small Iowa town and there was one video store for most of my youth, small little place. And in the back on this little cubby, they had a, the horror section. Uh, and I feel like a lot of my life was uh, created in that little five foot space, you know, uh, where they just had maybe three cabinets of horror stuff, but it was like things were back then. It was just completely yep. random selections of weird crap. Um, you know, they, they would have your st- standard big budget stuff, but they'd also have faces of death, you know, like right. they, just, they just had a random sampling of whatever they happened to order. And, you know, that's where probably a lot of episodes of your show start is in a place just like that, picking random things off the shelf and watching them with having no idea what you're about to get into. So, I mean, we could, I could come back weekly and we could just talk about a different (laughs) box on that shelf. Yeah. I I know how that is because I, I I was a child of the eighties. And so Walking through the the video store and just seeing the covers is oh, was always like such a thrill for me or a horrifying moment for me because there's some covers that terrified the absolute shit out of me. But I, also, I love that you you grew up in Iowa. I live in Nebraska. I live in Omaha, and my parents are living in in East Western Iowa. So like my my that's my world. <laughs> yeah, I mean you you're pretty isolated, and we were all sort of isolated pre-internet, but yeah, really isolated in a place like that. And the first taste you had of like something that you could choose, and now we can choose everything, was the sort of video stores. Yeah. Uh, what you could bring home. You'd probably have to rent the VCR too, since that's we didn't have VCR for a while. But you could actually choose which, ter- which terrible tape you wanted to take home. It was the best. Based on the cover art, it was my favorite as a kid. It was the best. Yeah. Like there's to this day, and again, this is probably common on this show. To this day, there's I'm still picking up all the pieces of those covers. Like I'll see a movie that pops up on Tubi or something, and I'll be like, "Yes, that was in that yep. store," and I never got around to it. And today's the day. Yep, all the time actually. And it's like, oh, this movie was not scary at all. Like it was a not a good movie, but they always were the ones that I thought were going to be the most terrifying. Yeah, and it's weird. A lot of the things that I would talk about on this show are movies that in retrospect, aren't very scary. And this is probably very common, but there were elements of it that just triggered something. What were some other, what were some other options that you had that scared you as a kid that aren't? There were so so many and some of them people had already done. Uh, Halloween three really scared me as a a little kid. Um, Weirdly, the movie, the stuff. Okay. If you don't understand what the hell is going on in that movie, you're just like, the ice cream yogurt is going to eat me. Like, it's over. (laughs) So many of these, like, scarred for life moments are are really moments. Like, sometimes Mm -hmm. there's a movie that's just horrifying from the beginning or end. Yeah. Uh, A lot of times it's just these isolated moments. There's a a bit near the end of 
the stuff with his character Chocolate Chip Charlie uh, opens his mouth and it just gets wider and wider and the stuff comes out. And I remember just like almost throwing up. Like I was <laughs> so horrified by that. And yeah. these things would really, really bother me. I had, I had, I can think of a couple other situations where I was like up in the bathroom thinking I was going to like uh, puke. Like these things really would affect me. Okay. The funniest one that uh, I didn't do, I'm not even sure you're allowed to do it on the show. It was a TV, it was a TV episode. Oh so yeah, we I, could do TV. <laughs> oh yeah. So I love Tales from the Dark Side as a kid. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there was this one episode um, called Case of the Stubborns. And uh, stars a very young Christian Slater. Oh, and, okay. You know, I, I, last year I rewatched all the Tales from the Dark Side, which I hadn't seen since I was a kid. Um, oh, cool. And because you know, Romero uh, produced them, and uh, you know, I'm a fanatic, so I wanted to catch up on all this stuff because he wrote and directed a little bit too on the show. But anyway, Case of the Stubborns is is not like one of the best episodes or anything like that, but it, it's about this guy who's dead and doesn't want to admit it and uh you know this old man and how they eventually get him to admit it is a they put pepper in his napkin and he blows his nose and then they you sort of see him from the back go back walk upstairs to his coffin and then christian slater opens up his napkin he's blown his nose off and the last image of this of this episode is just this sort of nose with some nose guts hanging out the back. Mm. And it scared me or it got to me so badly that for the next like couple years, at least I was afraid to turn channels on the TV because I was afraid that I would accidentally land on that moment. Yep. Oh. I know how that goes. That's, that's horrifying. And I remember one day I was turning the channels and uh, it didn't land on that moment, but it landed on the title card of that episode. And it was nope. like, I pretty much like threw the remote control across the room. <laughs> uh, it was, that one stays with. Wow. Yeah. Holy wow. shit. Okay. Well, now that we're talking about things that have scarred you for life, what movie, Daniel, have you brought with you today for us to discuss? I have brought uh, 1980-somethings, uh, Deadly Friend. Directed by Wes Craven. Deadly Friend, a film that I'm so excited I finally have gotten a chance to watch. For those of you unfamiliar with this Wes Craven masterpiece, a teenage whiz kid puts his robot's brain in the head of a nearly dead girl, played by Christy Swanson. Very basic synopsis. Very basic. basic. Does not do it justice, but take us back. How old were you when you saw this? Why did, how did you see it? What about it terrified you? Why is this your scarred for life pick? Well, nothing about the, what I'm about to tell you is going to surprise you. Um, (laughs) It, it would have been like when it was on HBO. So like whatever, like maybe a year after it came out, do we have the date on this one? It came out in 86. It looks like probably 87, something like that. And uh, at that point, I guess we must have gotten HBO. Either that or we had a free preview of it or something. Because remember, HBO used to run these free oh, preview yeah. weekends. Yep. Um, I know we went through many of those before we actually got it. So I remember like walking through the living room. A lot of my horrifying memories in life involved me just passing through the living room. And yep. um, and guess what? who's on screen but Christy Swanson with a basketball. <laughs> <laughs> And I sort of pause because that in the old days, I mean, you just kept your TV on. It was just on a yeah. just like run all the time. And it was night. And I, I paused and I saw Christy Swanson dribbling this basketball. And uh, what was her name? Is it Ann Ramsey? Yeah. Ann, yes, Ann Ramsey. Ann Ramsey. From, who from Throw Mama from the Train and the Goonies. The Goonies? Uh, she's standing there and Christy Swanson rears back with the basketball and throws it. And explodes Anne Ramsey's head in a just a fountain of gore. So much gore. It's so much gore. It's and it, it was just one of those moments where it's like I was probably in that living room for five seconds. I looked at it, head explosion, and just kind of like backed away. <laughs> I was like, nope. <laughs> and it became a moment for me that was a little bit like the Tales from the Dark Side nose where it was like, I don't know what that is, but I don't want to see it. There's something about the weirdness of it. Like, had it been someone, like, 
you know, shooting a gun at someone, their head exploding. It would have been one thing, but there's something about it being a basketball that just a basketball. It's absurd enough to make you feel weird. It's so Mm -hmm. it's like like almost uncanny because you're like it's between the basketball and like the head explosion. I as a kid, you probably didn't notice as much, but like the head explosion looks very not real because you can tell it is practical effects but then also just like the way she lobs it there's everything about it is just bizarre and it doesn't fit the movie really either like there's not a lot of that happening in this and again you hadn't seen the full movie as a kid but it doesn't fit in this movie at all no like everything involving that basketball is really shoehorned in it's almost like like the director like really wanted this basketball scene in a movie and this was the movie he was assigned to direct he's like well we're gonna work a basketball head explosion into it you're like what's Craven, buddy? What were you doing, honey? Like, well, what was the pl- like? What was the pl- oh? Tell me, tell me right a now. A lot of it was studio interference. Oh, so he okay. originally Wes Craven and Bruce Joel Rubin, who wrote the screenplay based off of a novel by Diana Henstel called Friend. They wanted to make a twisted, dark romance about a boy who puts the chip into this girl, and then the romance that sort of follows. But because of Wes Craven's lineage of Nightmare on Elm Street, once they did a test screening of it with a lot of his fans, they weren't happy with it because there wasn't enough gore. And so the producer said, Um, you got to add more gore. Wes Craven and Bruce did not want to, but they were kind of forced to do some research shoots and insert more of these horrific scenes into the movie because he just wanted to tell a PG story. Um, which would have been before I think I think this would have been before PG-13 even existed, but he wanted to make like a PG movie that was basically a dark romance with some thriller aspects to get away from being shoehorned as a horror director. I think that explains very succinctly the tonal weirdness of this movie. Yes. A lot of it does feel PG. Like it's Mm -hmm. just there's an element of it that feels like license to drive or goonies or something where there's just like it does kids yeah. running around like being mischievous and there's and yep. the robot is like it ha- it makes these little gremlins noises like baby it feels like a kid it feels like a coming of age kids movie it feels oh, like a gremlins like a thing like that and it's it's kind of cute and a little bit fucked up because obviously she's getting abused by her father and like their house is the refuge for christy swanson's character from her abusive dad but there is like this kind of happiness to it yeah like a little again it's not amblin-esque necessarily but like you, you can tell it's trying to get the spielberg vibes but also having a little bit of a darkness to it too yeah. The, which the, is interesting watching with him because i i hadn't thought about like the the chronology of like where this fell in his and it's interesting that this is after Nightmare on Elm Street because it feels much cuter at yeah, first, like but, cuter. But Craven was definitely somebody, um, and Romero falls in this camp too, where they wanted to do other stuff. Romero too also wanted to do kid stuff and wasn't allowed yeah. to. So, like, I totally buy Craven wanting to do something that was totally different for a new audience, and then. I bet the whole Anne Ramsey character wasn't even in that first. And they just, they said, we need a neighbor who we can violently kill. And so you get this weird, really jarring tonal shifts between frolicking kids and then some like really dark and gory stuff. There's three different brain surgery scenes in here that feel like unnecessary, <laughs> unnecessary. <laughs> yeah. And, from what I understand, it sounded as if because I had this quote from from Wes Craven where he was talking about we started off doing a picture that Warner Brothers indicated they wanted to do a macabre love story with a twist. But about five weeks into the shoot, they realized who I was and told me not to be inhibited by what they had told me in the past. So the last week of shooting, I made up one little nightmare scene and put it into the film. And it was the scene that like I found to be incredibly horrifying, which is yeah. the dad leering over the, the his daughter and then getting stabbed in his chest and the blood just gushing out everywhere which seems up until that moment it, just, it seems completely out of left field yeah. and 
that apparently worked really well with the test screenings. And so that is what caused them to do a lot of reshoots and start adding in and upping the body count because that scene was like, what the fuck? Cause it just, it comes out of nowhere. And I didn't know, I didn't know it was a dream. I should have, because of course you're coming off of the nightmare on Elm street and everyone's like, what's Craven's dreams. Let's add some more dreams to it. So I'm sure that's probably what happened, but it felt real in the moment until oh, yeah. she's jabbing him. And then it's just like gushing blood. Everyone's like, okay, this is a dream. But up until that point, I was like, this is really deeply uncomfortable because not only is it abusive, but he is leering over this young girl. And it's it gives very gross vibes to it that surprised the hell out of me. Yeah, it's well, an uncomfortable movie. It is an uncomfortable movie, especially because, again, like Samantha's a young girl who is abused by her father. And with a dream, I think all but confirms there's also other kinds of abuse. It's not just physical abuse, but there's like sexual abuse happening. And it's mm-hmm. really fucked up. But then I feel like something up there's something about this that gives me the ick this movie that gives me the ick a little bit and i just if it was from her perspective i think it would have been better but it feels like we don't really get her perspective only in her this one dream sequence but we don't really this isn't her movie and then we get her dream to kind of make her go through this really fucked up thing and then we go back out of the dream and no longer on her perspective. And I think it's such a weird choice to make. Like, oh, we're just going to see from Samantha's perspective here when she's going through a really yeah. fucked up situation with her dad. Like, just this once. Yeah. 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 And then like, then we basically get pushed down the stairs. So the only time we really see her when she's not the deadly friend is when she's getting abused by her dad or she's with her friend with Paul. And I, know, I mean, I know it's a 1980s slash movie about a girl gets a, a robot brain put in her. Like, I know that I shouldn't be thinking about it this critically, but it is kind of squicky when you have these like oh, yeah. abusive moments and make this movie about a young girl who was abused, who was then tur- like without her consent turned into her neighbor crush it, her neighborhood crushes. Toy. Yeah, I mean. I mean, it's just like, yeah. like it's just it's just like really gross, and I don't think the movie grapples with it enough for it, me to feel comfortable. <laughs> no, it doesn't grapple with it at all. And there is definitely a point where she's been resurrected, and you wonder for a minute there is she going to be his like sex robot? Like exactly. Yeah. I'm like, are you going to make are you going to make her fuck you? Because I really don't know if I can watch this movie if there's going to be any. Because <laughs> they talk about her tits at the very beginning. Like, doesn't she have nice tits? And like, yeah, she does. And I'm like, ew. Damn it! And again, I know it's the '80s, a different time. But like that, that tone, that one line, like makes you think. Ew! Why do you want to make her your? Like, why do you want to put the brain, her brain, the robot's brain in her? It just, it's all kinds of weird and like. Yeah, and that and that gross. comment, that comment, it comes as they're about to meet Anne Ramsey, which makes me wonder again if it was part of that reshoot. Yeah. Because up until then, the, the those two boys, their interactions have been really. PG and childlike. Yeah, exactly. All of a sudden, out of the blue, oh, that's a good point. All the suddenly they're just like talking like they're five years older. Yeah, because like it, most of the relationship between Paul and Samantha is pretty cute. It's like they it comes over like the mall. It's like they're trying to be a safe haven for her, but then it takes like this kind of weird turn that it's just really uncomfortable and kind of unlike Craven to me I think I think his characters are usually to me a little bit much more like much more thought through yeah. and I don't know something about it is just like it feels there's interest like the studio interference makes sense but it just something yeah. about it is just like I, I feel like I have generally enough confidence in Craven that I imagine the we I wouldn't have half the amount of complaints from his original from the original script i just don't feel like yeah that kind of tonal shift would have even been in us exactly his movie it feels like because again i hadn't like confirmed the year when i was watching it but i'm like this feels like an an early craven then because i know i knew it wasn't because of the glass house on the left but i'm like this doesn't feel like him it doesn't feel like the kind of like yes he makes slashers but i think he has really good characters in his slashers and i think he gives them more consideration than what is given to her here and it's just like very interesting to see kind of how perhaps he was influenced like how studios were trying to manipulate him to make things they wanted him to make i I think any filmmaker what if you're forced to put gore scenes into your children's movie yeah (laughs) it's not gonna work like yeah you're trying you're forcing a pg movie to suddenly be r and you know what? Well, what troubled me when I eventually saw it, which and I, it wasn't—I mean, I saw it relatively soon after my traumatic introduction to it—was that the main character, the the boy, 
was a was a character I knew from Little House on the Prairie. Um, he played. Oh yeah. And talk about like a really squeaky clean kid show. Right. My family watched that movie, that show a lot. My sisters really liked it and read all the books. And I was just familiar with this kid as being, I think his name was Albert on the show. And he's just someone who exuded innocence and, and then he's sort of transported here and he has this goofy robot. I mean, it's basically what this movie is really is it's Doogie Hauser Frankenstein, right? Yes. Yes. Oh my God, I actually, that is exactly I literally wrote that down as my note. <laughs> yeah. Did you really? <laughs> yes, I did. did. He's a brilliant, I don't know what he is, a surgeon? Surgeon in training? Uh, but what he's really doing is, is he's making a Frankenstein, right? Like he's mm-hmm. got, there's a dead body. Like technically, Christy Swanson is dead. Yeah. And instead of giving her like a, a stolen graveyard brain, he, he gives her a robot brain. And then what ensues after that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. No sense. All, all of a sudden, she becomes BB and she holds her hands like this. And <laughs> He just becomes the robot. So then it's like, wait, did you want to fuck your robot? uh, Again, I don't think there's anything more deeper than that. But just the fact that, and then when she's, her vision is pixelated like the robots, like, and then the ending where the robot is coming out of her flesh prison. (laughs) And that's not really clear if that's, and I'm assuming that was definitely not the original ending. There's no fucking way that was an original ending. That is such like a slasher movie ending of like, it's alive. And I I actually really liked that moment. Like that was a cool horror movie. It was cool. It was was a cool horror movie moment. (laughs) And apparently a 1990 interview with Fangoria Bruce Joel Rubin said about the ending and why it stayed in the film that robot coming out of the girl's head belongs solely to Mark Canton. And you don't tell the president of Warner Brothers this idea stinks. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that's how that kind of got ended, mean, added to the movie. But I will say that that is a it's it's quite an ending. It definitely will linger in your head because I was like, wow, this is in a movie that keeps taking turns. This is quite a turn. And I was I, I wanted to know if it was like a. a a, a joke ending like it was it was a nightmare type of thing but it doesn't even end on that it ends on his hearing his neck snap and it's the end and i'm like okay so it feels like a nightmare but is it real like it, it's it's such a weird bizarre ending but boy does it linger yeah it to go back to the robot brain for a second just to yes sort of clear the air here like it, <laughs> what, what was I, I, clearly at some point, like she had, she was going to have the robot brain. Um, and, and when they got to shooting that scene of her now, now with the robot brain, they suddenly had to deal with, well, what is a human being with a robot brain? What do they act like? And they never came up with a better answer than she walks like she's doing the robot, like a robot dance. <laughs> yeah. you know? like, with yeah. stiff, like why would you hold your arms out stiff? Why would you have pixelated vision if you still have flesh and blood eyes? Why would you suddenly be super strong? Your body is just a human corpse body. Why are you suddenly jumping over walls and like throwing people across the across the house? Like none of this makes any sense. Flying out of the attic. Lack that... of <laughs> lack of what? control of the vocal cords and only speaks like BB and then she can it's just like the opposite of all like cyborg movies. I feel like we see it is just like so. What like, you just put a chip in her head and it just it just worked out that way. Okay, dude, fine, I guess. And why did I mean? I don't see why he even kept her alive because she's just the robot. Like she's yeah. not Christy. You haven't saved Christy Swanson. You saved her corpse. Her corpse is being animated like a puppet. Oh, I would have loved it if her body started falling apart. You know what I mean? Yes, because like, he was like, she's cold. She's not. It's not like he's operating her organs. It's like he's just. Again, I'm just now. I'm thinking too hard about it, and it's just. <laughs> it's so goofy. It's so I mean, goofy. If you really played out the logic of it, it could be a really great fucked up adult horror film like it could be though like the body starts rotting and and you'd have to make the character really you know quite insane and the the movie kind of seems to want to have it both ways with having uh doogie house of frankenstein be both uh 
insane in some ways, but really likable in others. But it's just it, it what he's doing is horrible. Runs his really mom like a lot of drugs in her coffee at one point, so he won't. So she doesn't know that they're going to steal her body from the morgue and bring it back to life. Like they are grave robbing. And then he has the balls to punch his friend in the nose at the end and be like, how dare you? And his friend is like, I, who are you, dude? You just moved here. You're implicating me in all these crimes. Don't punch me. Yeah, he's, he's, this Doogie Hauser guy is like, he's horrible. He's he like, really is. Me- really mentally unbalanced. But I love I love Tom because he keeps like passing out in this movie. And there's the moment when he like is riding up on his bike at the end. And, and um, I can't I, I think it's where they're taking the bodies out and he like literally falls off his bike. And I was like, OK, I, yeah, I, I love that this is happening. And I love how goofy this character played by Michael Sherritt is. I just I I love his performance. It's so it's it's so bizarre and it it, it de- definitely feels like everyone is acting in a completely different movie. We have Christy Swanson being um a robot but also looking like a zombie. We have Doogie Hauser and then we have Tom who is just like this golly gee I'm going to faint at the sight of blood type of character and it just I don't know to, for some reason their little trio worked for me even though the, the, the story is really kind of horrific and fucked up from from a Doogie Hauser Frankenstein perspective. But yet, I don't know. There's something about the relationship that was like, this is kind of interesting. Everything you said is true. And I, and I do want to state kind of for the record that I found this totally watchable. Like it is yeah. it is so bonkers and heading in so many different directions at once that it kind of has to be seen. Like, yeah, you, yeah. you have to be watched to be believed. It's you see the gif on Twitter all the time of the head explosion, and you're like, "What could this movie possibly fucking be?" And I finally got to experience what this movie is because this is the first time I watched it, and I can't say I'm disappointed. I, at least the madness is like most of the movie. It's totally insane and makes no sense, but like, hey, it's cool. It's weird that it exists, and Wes Craven directed it of all people, not some random nobody. Wes Craven after nightmare on elm street oh speaking of did you notice that uh there's a uh the 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 dad who is a confirmed pretty much child molester ends up getting burned with his flesh (gasps) all oh fuck i didn't even think about that it's basically almost a freddy krueger origin story because that's exactly comes out of the bed he comes out out of the bed bed. it's exactly how freddy krueger was was made i guess you could say so all i'm saying wow. is this is canon nightmare on the street <laughs> this is a true story freddy, freddy krueger <laughs> murdered his daughter and she got turned into a weird robot by the creepy boy next door <laughs> yeah that's the that's the this is the prequel to nightmare on the street really weird Prequel. All right, everybody. Uh, I want to direct a requel where it is combining Deadly Friend and Nightmare on Elm Street to make this canon. We are there doing we it. It is happening. I cannot wait. <laughs> but I, I am curious, Daniel. So you saw that scene on TV and then you said you saw it in its entirety a little bit later. What what yeah. did you think when you finally sat down to watch the whole thing? Do you remember how well, if, it, think, if it bothered you at all? I mean, it, I think anyone who... Uh, sees that the the gif of the basketball head and then sees the movie will be as bewildered as they were, they were before because it has no bearing on the movie like you don't watch the basketball head scene and think oh i bet this is about a robot <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but at, at, around this time i was a really big nightmare on elm street fan so i really got in around the time of dream warriors I feel like I might have been in like fifth grade or some somewhere in that neighborhood. And I, I became uh, really fanatical about uh, Freddy Krueger. And so I probably, I can't confirm this, but maybe saw that it, it was a Wes Craven movie, whether how much I was aware of directors and their, their catalog, I'm not really sure. But either I watched it because it was a Wes Craven movie or I watched it because I did have a tendency to, to watch purposely watch things that I knew would scare me. Um, and, and sometimes Same. it would backfire terribly and I'd be dry yeah. heating after this stuff. Uh, but so, yeah, so I watched it and was, it was a long time ago. So I'm, you know, I'm stretching a little bit, but I'm sure I was very puzzled uh, by it. And probably back then less aware of how tonally 
totally weird and kind of unique it was and more just like people of the time which were probably just sort of disappointed in it kind of what you wanted it from didn't your do well oh i'm sure well like at that age and that time what you kind of wanted from slashers if you're a fifth grade kid is you want naked teenagers you want the gore mm-hmm. um and this featured none of the former and and some of the latter in, in impressive uh, moments, which I think s- still probably made it kind of pay off. Like I, it's not like I watched it and forgot about it. Like I watched it and I remember watching it because you aren't expecting because of the childlike nature of it, the gory stuff that happened. So it didn't, right. it didn't became a favorite of mine or anything like that, but I remembered it. And it's, it's so weird. Cause I, I also, I'm a huge, well, I'm a huge West West Craven fan. Um, and I was, as a kid, Freddie was my, my go-to uh, one of the few movies I owned was Nightmare on Elm Street four on a beta tape. Like that was like my prized possession. And I would wear that shit out because I loved, I loved Freddie. I loved Wes Craven's movies, his original movie. Um, but I didn't even know that this existed when you had suggested it. I was like, deadly friend. What is that? And I looked it up. I was like, this is a Wes Craven film for some reason has completely escaped my, my, my knowledge. So I was really excited to actually sit down and, and watch this mid 80s version of of Wes Craven when he was like coming off of you know Nightmare on Elm Street and all that it's just it's wild to me and I was I was when I was sitting down to watch it last night I was like 45 minutes in and was like where does all the the killing happen because other than the the one dream with the you know the piercing through the, the stomach there's not a whole lot until we get to the last half of the movie when she has become the robot I didn't realize how long it was going to take for us to get to that moment i just i expected it first act she's dead second act you know we we do all the killing third act we have to resolve it but it's like the midpoint of the movie almost is where she finally gets transformed into a robot and i was like this is fascinating from a from a structural perspective because then it it does literally turn into a slasher and and that's when i was like what happened with this movie and had to go down the rabbit hole but what a what a wild time the wild experience and we did it together goes from (laughs) Madcap shenanigans to madcap shenanigans like sex, sex robot death march. Honestly, but, I would watch a movie called Sex Rob, Robot Death March. Yeah, that um, sounds pretty. That sounds, sounds great. Badass. Honestly, I'm fucked up enough that I would watch like an adult version of this, where like he, a Frankenstein type guy makes a fuck doll and it's like falling apart, and he's trying to figure. Oh, to Terry, shut up! You know I would watch that. I would oh, make that movie. Are you fucking kidding what? me? Maybe I'll make it. Like honestly, that sounds good. Like I, I really like, like those kind of absurd scenarios that have some real viscerality to them. Uh, like, like I would, I would seriously read or watch that. Like that sounds like there's something there. I want to see Poor Things, which is the Yorgos the most Frankenstein, which might be. I don't know if it's the exact same, but there's it's horny Frankenstein with Emma Stone as the monster. Right. So. Right. Anyway, do we want to wrap this up and give this our rating out of five? That sounds good. All right, like, Terry, we're all going to give the rating. We're all going to. Yep. You're last. You get the final word. Good, because I need to get a sense of how this goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, so Terry, you're up first. How many dramatically exploding heads out of five do you give Deadly Friend? You know, one of my favorite things about that moment, though, is the fact that, yes, I've seen the gif of the head exploding, but then the body yes. is moving around like a chicken without its head <laughs> for a good five <laughs> seconds. And I was like, wow that's worse yeah because i was waiting for the head i waiting for the head to explode because i had seen the gif and then i was like whoa this thing just continues and what also this watching this made me realize that not only was ann ramsey born in omaha nebraska but she is interred here in the cemetery in omaha nebraska oh my god and I'm like, Pay her a visit. that's wild that's wild you know what you should do is put dig her up put a robot brain <laughs> in her <laughs> She's back. She's back. <laughs> and I have Mama Fratelli as a, as a as a robot. Um, oh my god! <laughs> I love that. Please. But I, you know, I I would not know what to expect of this movie. It definitely gave me whiplash at the at the tones. But I have to say that it is, as you said, Daniel, it is eminently watchable and it's bonkers. And I had I had a good time with it. It, it, it I think I enjoyed the last half surprisingly more than the first half, but. What a what a wild movie. Um, 
very clunky in spots. Definitely can tell studio in, in interference. But for me, I, I had a good time with it. And I definitely would bring this movie out with a bunch of friends, get some you know drinks going and just have a blast with it. So for me, I'm going to give it three. Three um, dramatically exploding heads. I think it's it's a fun time. What about you, Mary Beth? Yeah, I think I agree. I think I'm going to give it three. I, I was going for a two before the conversation, <laughs> but I was like, all right, I, I appreciate it for what it is. And I just love when like huge filmmakers like Wes Craven have these kinds of movies just like in the middle of their filmography, not even the beginning. Like it's in the middle. And I love that. We all can make weird shit and that's okay. And I just, you know, sometimes you need to, as a creative, know that sometimes you make weird shit and it might not be the best thing you've ever made, but you still made it and you made something after it. So your career isn't over. That's a weird mind space I'm in right now. Anyway, um, but yeah, that's the three dramatically exploding heads for fr- for a deadly friend for me. But then, Daniel, you have the final word. How many exploding heads out of five? I'm going to rate this not based on sort of, you know, Academy of Motion Pictures quality, but just sort of based on... <laughs> What, if I owned this, would I watch it again? And it's a resounding yes. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, I had an absolute ball with this. And I'm a sucker for things that are totally off. And usually you get those from filmmakers who don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, and there's an inherent sort of forgiveness you give to that because they're they're new at it. And sometimes when you don't know what you're doing, you make fascinating missteps that that reveal something sort of new. This is not that, but the the end product is similar. And squickiness aside, I kind of love it. And so I'm going to give it four exploding, dramatically exploding heads. Oh, Hell yeah. yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much, Daniel, for joining us and getting me to watch this movie. Where can our listeners find you online? And the floor is yours to um, to plug away. Well, danielcrass.com is uh, my uh, internet online website. <laughs> and uh, that kind of has... <laughs> I just like to send people there because I don't know what's going to happen with uh, any other social media. Who knows? So go there and it'll it'll send you off to other places if those places still exist. And I don't have anything else to plug. Uh, just just Whale Fall. That's uh, that's I don't have another adult novel until next fall. So we'll just play it close to the chest until then. Wait, did and are they also congrats on it getting? Are they making yeah, a movie making into a movie. Uh, yeah, that's. That's supposed to happen. Hell yeah. Congrats. That's going to give me nightmares. I can't wait. Um, <laughs> <laughs> listeners, you've heard from us. We want to hear from you. What was your experience with Wes Craven's Deadly Friend? Send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. I am at MB McAndrews on Twitter and Blue Sky, and I'm at MB.McAndrews on Instagram. And I'm a Gaily Dreadful everywhere. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast everywhere. You can follow us on Twitter and Blue Sky at Scarred Podcast, and then on Instagram at Scarred for Life Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. And if you want to help support us, we do have a Patreon. Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. Oh, oh, oh.